Boraway Army and fellow music fans, I'm Kayla. And I'm Bethany, and we're the hosts of Standing BTS from the Consequence Podcast Network. We're a bi-weekly show that covers the impact and legacy of K-pop group BTS. We mix the perfect blend of research and fangirl as we take a deep dive into lyrics during album reviews, theorize over music videos, and keep up with their current events. No BTS topic is off limits. We welcome everyone into the conversation, whether you're a casual fan, committed ARMY, or someone who's just curious about one of the biggest music groups in the world. Come chat with us every other Thursday with a new episode wherever podcasts are found. Hello, hello, and welcome to the Spark Parade, where I geek out with artists and entertainers about the single cultural work that's most inspired them. I'm Adam Ons. Thanks so much for joining me. So, big day here. Like... Huge day. Roisin Murphy is on the show. Can you cope with this news? I can't. It's unbelievable, but absolutely true. You know, some people say that you shouldn't meet your heroes. Well, I am here to tell you that those people are fucking idiots because she was an absolute delight. We had such a great conversation and it was, quite honestly, better than anything I could have hoped for. Have I conveyed my excitement effectively? Should I stop all this embarrassing gushing? I will do my best, but my god, what a fucking thrill. Somehow, in addition to releasing one of the best albums of the year and producing one of the best concert live streams ever, not to mention all of the brilliant performances she's done from home during quarantine, somehow, in the midst of all that, she found time to talk to little old me about her love for Terrence Conran's 1974 interior design and decoration Bible, The House Book. That was really just a jumping off point, though. We talked a lot about architecture as well, focusing on a formative European architecture tour that Roisin took with her boyfriend as a 17-year-old. I am So, so, so excited for you to hear this, and I will get on with it in a sec, but first I just want to encourage you to look at the episode show notes on thesparkparade.com. There are some good visual aids there, which I think will help you. You can take a look at some of the buildings that Roisin and I talked about. I haven't linked to the most famous ones like the Acropolis and the Parthenon because I'm assuming you already know what those look like. Anyway, let's get to the good stuff, shall we? Quick Roisin facts. Roisin Murphy is an Irish singer, songwriter, and producer who first found fame as one half of electronic music duo Maloko. She has since released five solo albums, including this year's Roisin Machine, which has received widespread acclaim and has been found on many lists of the year's best albums. Quick housebook facts. The housebook is designer Terence Conrad's 1974 ode to home decoration and interior design. It's a coffee table book that is a profusely illustrated guide to every aspect of decorating. It provides ideas and techniques for increasing the beauty and comfort of homes of all styles and sizes. And there you have it. Now, let's cut the shit. No more waiting, okay? Here comes my fantastic chat with Roisin Murphy about the housebook. So, um, yeah, the, uh, the house book, um, mm. uh, amazing. Have you seen it? Have you ever seen the book itself? No. I've got it um, here. I mean, 
little glimpses of it from uh, places online. So lots of design stuff, lots of like, um, you know, 50 different examples of a fireplace and of um, uh, a table and and all of that kind of stuff. Is is that what we're talking about? It's it's more lifestyle than just specific to the items and... um, it's so utopian and uh, it's everything that I wanted growing up. I wanted to grow up to be this person that lives in these houses. Yeah. And you had this book when you were little? Yeah. This ha- this was in our house. My mother was an antique dealer um, and uh, we actually lived in an old Georgian house and double, double-fronted Georgian house. Lovely old house. It was half finished almost at every, at every place you went and... And uh, we didn't have central heating and we didn't have a mm. telephone. And oh, wow. so it was quite wild, <laughs> but really yeah. quite elegant, an elegant house. But we had lived, the first house that we lived in, my father built it. And um, it, was a, oh, wow. it was a modernist house that he plonked right in the middle of the town that he grew up in, in Enniscorty. And it was almost like a kind of up yours mm. to everyone. Um, I'm sure it got up the noses of a few people, but it had um, it had a sort of corner that was glass, that was two huge pieces of glass meeting that hung out kind of cantilevered over the road. And these huge windows had orange curt- electric curtains and stuff. So it was like a super modern atomic house that I, w- I was brought up in from a baby. But then we moved from that town to Arklow and we moved into this sort of rickety old house you know Hmm. classic old haunted house (laughs) and um, yeah and and this book was there my mother had lots of books about paintings and about antiques and she had lots of books also she had those books where they come out every year and give you the price lists of antiques and things and I I used to just love these things and, and looking through these things and she had loads of art books and, and she had this, you know, and uh, mm. this is probably kind of your first wave of everybody having coffee table books as well. You right. Know? Um, but, it, you know, I used to pour over it. I used to wish I could have a mezzanine level or a, mm. a sunken uh, seating area or carpeted room, you know, where the rooms <laughs> were, where the walls were carpeted. Or, you know, I mean, this sort of thing that's in the background here, these kind of concentric circle things, this is a, a Brazilian artist. Um, I was always really into kind of colourful, retro, um, just wishing for a, a totally different kind of world, really, in a way. And um, not totally different because it's so social, this whole book, you know, so much mm-hmm. about eating and it's always like these like gangs of crazy hippies around psychedelic uh, tablecloths in amazing, um, <laughs> you know, rooms with huge windows and loads of light. And of course, Terence Conran, he started off by, you know, by importing and, and putting together, creating um, homeware from all over the place and he, he created a store here in London and that's that it was all about kind of having the right pots and pans and and it developed into this uh, whole 
not just your whole home, but your whole lifestyle and your whole outlook, which was a more colorful and um, creative kind of space, your house. You know, it was like mezzanine levels and soft areas and big baths and, and big kitchens, you know. People didn't used to have big kitchens before all this. They, the kitchen was where you, the woman was hiding in a tiny little room in the back and you'd have like a fancy parlor and stuff like that. Were, the practicalities of that for real life, you know, in the later part of the 20th century, and that became ridiculous. And, uh, and everybody started opening up their houses and opening up the space and, and living together and cooking together. And, you know, and I love this, you know, using the t- top of the house and showing the beam and all that sort of stuff just used to really... I, I used to climb into these pictures and, and be in them. And then I'd go up to my room afterwards and try and arrange it in a way, you know, maybe bring some palettes in to try and create mm. a, a mezzanine level. And it was a big <laughs> space, so, I mean, it was actually quite... I could do certain amounts of things. Once I tried to move from the other side of the landing in the other room, I tried to move this huge, like, Danish G-plan cabinet from one room to the other because I wanted to split the room, you know, have a room splitter and stuff like that. Yeah. So anyway, I think it ignited a a lifelong love of architecture, actually, more than Mm -hmm. just interior design because it's so architectural the book um, and the design attitude is to reveal the design itself, to reveal the space, to leave the beams, to open the wall, to let the light in, to show the structure, to or to paint, you know, uh, lines like this, colourful lines like this up the stairs to accentuate the movement in the houses and stuff like that. And um, Mm. it's all quite quite big scale in a way it's not um detail as, as much as it is a whole plan for living yeah yeah and uh, that's architectural that's architectural i should say yeah and I, I guess kind of the marriage of those two things like architecture and interior design and thinking of things holistically having a space where you take the, the bones of it, which is the architecture, and then figure out the best use of the space and the ways to, you know, make the space the most livable and yes. pleasant and um, kind of exploring what each room is, you know, the function of it, but also how to make those functions exist in harmony with real people's lives and, and the way that they they live and their families and, you know, all of those other yeah. things. Um so yeah, it's pretty. It's pretty cool. They, uh, I, I found this list of uh, somebody uh, took the best bits of advice from that book, and um, one of them was matching sets of towels and flannels in good strong colors revive a dreary bathroom, which I love. <laughs> yeah, look at this, like opening up the space like this. Oh, Just so beautiful to see the the rafters and the integrity of that and then it's just so homey as well i mean yeah yeah and so that sort of ignited a lifelong love of architecture mm-hmm. which uh, i continue to this day i mean i'm part of the brutalist appreciation society and the postmodern appreciation society i've written letters 
uh, to people to try and stop buildings being uh, torn down. Mm-hmm. Um, we succeeded at one and we failed at the other. Um, mm. And I went, the first tour I ever did was not a music tour. It was a tour of architecture <laughs> around Europe. And uh, I went, I had a boyfriend when I was 17, who was an architecture student. And he took me around Europe. We went through France, uh, Spain, Italy, and down to Greece, and then back up again. Mm. And we were, had it planned out six weeks. And each stop was planned around a building. And it was fascinating. We lived on £10 a day. Mm. Um, we lived on baguettes and spready cheese, I remember. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, but, we, you know, it, it was just mind-altering. And um, I saw buildings like, you know, the Pompidou Centre, Grand Champ, which is, it must, it made me cry. It's a, it's a church by um, Corbusier. Mm-hmm. Um, we saw some Carlos Scarpa, we saw, and then we went down, we went into a bit more ancient and, uh, the Pantheon, I remember seeing the Pantheon in Rome, the hole in the ceiling, mm-hmm. the largest dome held up on its own in the world for thousands of years. Mm-hmm. I think still. Yeah. And so things like that. And then we, we actually made a plan to meet someone. This was before we had mobile phones. And we said, we'll meet you underneath the Parthenon, underneath the uh, Acropolis hmm. at such and such a time, on such and such a date. Uh, six weeks later, we met him <laughs> under there that that time, on that date. It was amazing. And he was actually a fellow of Cambridge. He's the youngest ever fellow of Cambridge at that time. And he was... Uh, the theology so he's the perfect person to take us around the acropolis and uh, yeah. then we went to just had a relax on, a, on an island and um, but yeah i had a, a similar experience going uh being in rome i had a friend who's italian who uh you know took took us everywhere and really carefully explained like you know talking through the history of the forum and and all of that stuff um my husband and I, or oh, now husband and I, uh, actually stumbled through a, a bunch of places and like saw all of these beautiful ancient things and kind of thought that we had just discovered them. Like we, you know, this was again. I, I think we didn't have uh, roaming abilities or whatever, um, yeah, so we couldn't really that. use our phones. It was too expensive. And that's called that. That's a nice thing to do. It's called ge- psychogeography. Hmm. It's to just uh, go walking. And and not without any plan, especially in the city, it can be fascinating to just leave the phone down and keep walking. Yeah, I yeah. think the situationalists, situationalists made it up. Um, yeah, so some of it was like a bit ridiculous, though, like walking into the Pantheon and being like, "Whoa, what is this place? We've got to tell everybody about this." It's like everybody knows, everyone For a few knows. Thousand years. <laughs> yeah, um, but I think. All of all of that architecture that you've just talked about, like uh, very, very modern stuff in these very old cities, mm. um, you know, particularly the Carlos Scarpa stuff mm. in Venice, mm-hmm. where it's this like this fusion of these ancient traditions, the city that's 
you know, full of history. It's like the weight of it just uh, is is ever present. And somebody who's from that city and has a great respect for the history of the city, but also, you know, uh, is interested in the modernist movement, has like Japanese influences, um, all of these things coming in and, you know, walking around uh, European cities, uh, looking at buildings in European cities, especially cities in like, you know, Greece and Italy, where there's seriously old shit. Mm. Um, it can feel like that's all that is available. That's all that there's room for in those cities. But, you know, these, these cities aren't museums. They're, they're living, breathing things. And, um, I always find it so interesting that intersection between, you know, in some cases, buildings that are, have been around for a millennia, uh, interacting with these hyper-modern buildings, these like, you know, weird angular structures or like the, the Pompidou where it's like this kind of inside out uh, techno thing. Yeah, just dropped in the middle of a city that's like uh, has a very set character. So yeah, that must have been pretty mind-blowing as a 17-year-old to uh, get to experience all of it that. It really was. It really was. But so, what you were talking about is going on in this book as well, you know, the, the idea of, like, placing a cube of glass at the back of a of a, of a London terraced house, you know. Hmm. The, the fact that you can open up the door and something else has been made, it's been slid in like a Carla Scarpa, you know. Uh, everything with him there is like sort of he found something that just is beautiful and he somehow found a hole where that beautiful thing just fits right and then that's like old and that's new and but isn't it he that said god is in the detail hmm. so i i keep that in mind a lot when i'm making my own things and people are like okay it's finished Roisin, or whatever you know and I, <laughs> Just this tiny little, just this colorway, you just change that. And it's kind of like, yeah, that little tiny detail doesn't count, but the concern over the details across all the details does count, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. An accumulation. Absolutely of, accumulative. Of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Totally amazing. And also, like, I think uh, with uh, Gavassier, uh, that, like, the church that you mentioned is like a, a you know obviously this historic uh you know perfect example of of modernism but i think his whole career starting out with things that are you know still unusual still very distinctive in his style but um a bit more traditional and moving into this stuff in his older age that kind of feels like his paintings turned into buildings or something just like weird angles windows thrown all over the place um you know it, it looks like a creature instead of a building or something like that and uh yeah just that that totally fascinates me well there could be that there was a kind of schism at some point in his life around that time uh in his brain about what it was that he believed in and much of the sort of utopian ideas he had about architecture were beginning to unravel mm. or seem to be, seem to be. Or architecture was being, beginning to be blamed for a lot of stuff mm -hmm. that actually hadn't anything to do with the fucking architecture. But, yeah. And he was getting a lot of blame and a lot of slack for the things that he said in the papers that he wrote and the buildings that he built. And 
And the idea that people could be corralled into sort of ant-like sort of um, amalgamations, you know, tower blocks and so on. Yeah. Um, now just seems quaint, actually. Uh, the early modernism in that form. But it was very scary for people. Mm. And um, and there was a coldness about his 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 sort of um, doctrine that went along with with the, the architecture. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was probably maybe going through a bit of a thing. And this was a very personal building and it's expressionism. That's what he's gone mm. full on into being like an expressionist. It's like sculpture. It is an expressionist sculpture of the mother and child. Mm-hmm. At one angle, you see this kind of um, cradling mother figure, and that's the shape of the building. Mm. So um, it's pure expressionism, and every single thing in the building he made as well. So all the he designed all the the glass in there, and the, the you know it's hand painted in places by him, mm-hmm. and. Um, when I was there, you could go everywhere in it. I don't know if that's the case now, but um, we were all over it. And I stood back from it at one point and just cried Mm -hmm. because it seemed to have such sorrow. And um, it it felt a very lonely, well, not lonely, but um, solitary. it had a, a solitary feeling to it. Yeah. It wasn't big enough for a large crowd. It felt like it was for one, like a chapel for mm. one. Yeah. And it's it's quite isolated. Like uh, there's not other buildings around it, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I think, again, like going back to that intersection between architecture, interior design and art, mm. um, you know, fine art, and all of those elements are there. And I think having an architect who understands all of those things creates all of that work and um you know take takes charge of every element of the construction of the building and the you know uh thinking about its function uh in terms of the furniture in terms of the you know interior design all of those things coming together um so yeah i think it's it's pretty rare to have somebody um taking charge of all of those elements yeah. and and uh it's it's amazing but i mean going back to the book now you know see these, these <laughs> yes. are probably architects here yeah you see yeah, having yeah. a little sunday um meal together in someone's house yes and they're probably very hopeful aren't they yeah you know there's so yeah. much i wonder if architecture has still got much in the line of utopian dream about it anymore Mm, yeah and so much of the work's already been done in a way yeah i i was thinking when you were talking about the house that your dad built like the uh kind of imagining the reception from the neighbors or whatever and there was something i was reading about uh new styles of architecture anything that is outside of the established norm is always generally going to be received poorly um, when it first arrives and that it just takes a bit of time for people to understand and appreciate uh, 
newness, especially when you're putting things into older cities or, um, you know, like with the church, replacing uh, a, a much older structure with something that's uh, very different to what, what it once was. Um, but with the modernist movement and especially brutalism, which I am, I love as well, but, you know, like walking around uh, the Barbican or, or somewhere like that, where um, you can understand people perceiving it as something that's very cold and utilitarian. But for somebody who actually appreciates it, and I think with time, people have, have come to the understanding to, uh, to be able to acknowledge the beauty of it and um, see that it's actually find the warmth in it and the humanity. Um, so, yeah. Uh, well, you know, my father would not have built that house if he was like his peers, you know, if he was religious. Mm. Um, if he uh, wasn't slightly subversive in, in himself and his outlook and his outlook was one to kind of crack the norm and to to stick it in their faces a little bit as well if I'm going to be honest you know right plonked smack in the middle of the town he started to make money you know and he he showed off by designing this this house and, and didn't really, um, I don't know if it's just about time, uh, acceptance mm -hmm. of that. It's about, you know, a sea change in, in all sorts of things. Now it wouldn't be a big deal mm -hmm. to, to, to put a, a modern building in. Oh, it would still be a fairly big deal, actually, mm -hmm. to put a modern building in the center of a town like Enniscorty. Yeah. And I guess part of it is just taste as well. There are some people who will always hate, uh, you know, different styles of uh, any particular style of architecture uh -oh. that is not, oh, I'm sure they you know, to their liking. They didn't like the cut of my father's jib anyway. <laughs> <laughs> and with something like the, you know, the South Bank, no, I think people loved it when it was built first. And people loved, many times, people absolutely loved huge, big uh, housing complexes that were built. Like, I started my career in Sheffield music career hmm. and I lived in um, in part of Park Hill Flats which mm -hmm. was not when I was living there because so much of it had been bulldozed but when it was built it was the biggest of its kind and it was one of the earliest ones in the UK and um, and it's a bit it was a big epic brutal structure all interconnected these high-rise things all interconnected right smack bang in the center of the city and um people loved it loved it mm. they, they flocked to it i mean you want to watch the documentary about it from the time you know people are, oh it's yeah. brilliant and it had streets in the sky so that at that time people used to always have their milk delivered so they had to build mm. in these like streets that were wide enough for the milk floats like a a lift for the milk floats to go on the streets next to everybody's doors mm. on the high rises, you know, and oh, it was just the best thing ever. Yeah. And they were, and they were very well built things, but they weren't looked after. And um, people were pr pr promised a, you know, Shangri-La, and pretty soon it was left to to rot. And people lost a lot of jobs around that time as well in a in a city like Sheffield, which was a big industrial place. It was you know, supplied the world's steel. Mm -hmm. And um, and that all just went from hero to zero in no time. So that's what affected the building, you know. Yeah. 
poverty affected the building, social, you know, cohesion, lack of affected the building, and care. Mm-hmm. And, and, and knowing what to do and knowing how to care for it. And now all of a sudden they're scrambling in Sheffield to save what's left of it because it's become a landmark. It's become, it's actually been um, listed, what's left of it. Mm. Mm. So. Yeah. It's, uh, I, I mean, I, you know, again, drawing the comparison to the Barbican, which is like specifically designed as uh, for luxury. It was not uh, like a, a housing estate. And the difference in the preservation, I'm sure, is very clear. And there's a reason behind that, that it's like, uh, you know, mm. the intended purpose of the building affects the care taken as well and the people that are the building is intended for yeah i think if if the if the government built it for people who are, haven't got much money and then they need to stand by the building and, and stand by the idea pulling people out of these awful ghettos that they pulled them out of you know mm-hmm. but they just let them fall down and, and then they blame the building and they blame the um yeah. left-wing architects and the Marxist ideas behind these, you know, brutalism really was the style of socialism as well, you know, and mm-hmm. and had a massive um, political uh, angle to it in its doctrine in, at the very centre of it. Mm-hmm. Um, it was about housing people. It was about housing people. It was about providing um, public space for people. Mm-hmm. And... Um, there was a lot of optimism and, you know, and I don't think it was such a bad thing. Yeah, neither do I. Um, I feel very satisfied. I think that was a lovely chat. Hello. Um, I really appreciate you making time for me. Thank you so much. Take care. Thanks, love. I look forward to it. Ciao. Yeah, bye. Bye. Pretty fucking cool, right? I'm still kind of in a state of shock about it. Thank you again so, so much to Roisin for making time to talk to me. And before we get off topic, my cultural inspiration this week is, of course, Roisin Machine. Uh, (laughs) I've been wanting to talk about it since it came out, but I decided to save it for this episode. Was that a smart decision, or does it make me sound like a crazed superfan? You decide. Anyway, uh, I love Roisin's music so, so much, so I may be a little biased, but actually, no. It's just an objectively great album. It's a great big beam of sunshine in this year full of stress and fear and upset. It's a fantastic listen from start to finish, but my favorite track is something more. It's so lush and expansive and emotional, and I love it so much. Um, Allow me to explain. I just went upstate for a little getaway at an Airbnb with my husband last weekend, and we were driving back on the New Jersey side of the Hudson River at a place where we were on a hill with this fantastic view of the river and New York City and just this incredible landscape as the sun was going down. And that was the moment that something more popped up on my playlist. And that feeling, driving toward the sunset and the city on a beautiful, clear evening, that's how this song makes me feel all the time. So listen to it and listen to the whole album and watch all the other content Roisin has put out this year. It's all incredible. And that's the end of my ass kissing. Uh, (laughs) What a week. My God. So uh, that's it for now. Please tell all of your friends about this show and get them to subscribe or just steal their phones and subscribe for them. They'll thank you for it. Other than that, just have a great week, please. 
Stay safe, be good, take incredibly good care of yourself, and until next time, bye! When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.